A biblical view of the Christian life and ministry has a long-term generational focus because it's impossible apart from material and physical blessing to live out a godly life and to be an example before God's people for the long haul. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. I want you to take your Bibles uh, and be turning to the book of 3 John, 3 John. We began, um, I guess about three weeks ago, a study in the book of 2 John, and that took us through two sermons of this very short epistle, and I I thought it might be a good idea to go ahead and study 3 John. Um, These are often neglected epistles written by the Apostle John. And uh, so we want to look at 3 John, and we'll probably take three opportunities to look at this short epistle. Both of these epistles are about the same length. Uh, They are really the shortest epistles um, in the Bible. So 3 John, I want to read beginning in verse 1 through verse 8. That's our text. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, the title of the message, The Beloved Gaius, picking up in verse 1. John writes under inspiration of of the Holy Spirit, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. May God add his blessing to his holy word. Please be seated. Let's ask the Lord's help this morning. Father, we thank you for this text, this oft-neglected text of 3 John, and we pray that in the next two to three weeks as we look at this epistle, Lord, that your word might be open to us, that as we continue to discuss the important concepts of truth and love that are found weaved throughout the scriptures, that we would understand how to apply this ancient text, this inspired text, to our lives today. And we pray that we might do it as an act of worship, To honor you and to glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As many of you know, I come from many generations of Christians, Uh, but as I entered my teenage years, I realized that really I understood the Bible not that well. I didn't know the scriptures as much as I should have, and I certainly didn't understand the scriptures the way that I should have. The Lord used that sort of quest to better understand the Bible Uh, personally, as motivation to help others better understand the Bible. And I began to sense the Lord calling me into the ministry. 
in God's providence, he introduced me to expository preaching when I was a, a young boy, the expository preaching sermons of John MacArthur. And then later I attended college uh, to become an expositor of the Word of God and then attended seminary to receive my Master of Divinity to become an expositor of the Word of God. Along the way, I was able to secure an internship under Steve Kreloff uh, in Clearwater, Florida, who knew John MacArthur personally. And then later in the later years of my life, I was able to study under John MacArthur and Steve Lawson to understand the Bible better and to become a better expositor. Because the great desire of every true preacher, I believe, is to reveal to God's people the illumination He has received. In fact, I think it's better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. And in fact, that is the single greatest motivation for my ministry. It is the thing that prompts me to stand up here week in and week out. It is to reveal God's truth to God's people. There was a Puritan by the name of Matthew Mead. He wrote a work entitled Almost Christian Discovered in which he made the following three observations. He said, first of all, it is true that some know just to know, while some know to be known and others some Others know to practice what they know. Mead says, to know just to know is merely curiosity. To know to be known is vainglory. But to know in order to practice what we know is our gospel duty. And this is what Matthew Mead said makes a complete Christian. Because here's the reality this morning. The truest thing about me and the truest thing about you is what God says about you. What God says about me. Yet most Christians know very little about 2nd and 3rd John. How, how can they understand how to apply the scriptures like 2nd and 3rd John if they don't even understand what the books are about? These two epistles present to us, I think, very relevant issues that relate to the contemporary church today. And for these epistles, I think that we need to be grateful. As I stated in our study of 2 John, all three of John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, really need to be studied in tandem in order to understand them. And if you want sort of a, a summarized snapshot of these epistles, 1st John was written to a group of local churches in Asia Minor by the Apostle John. 2 John was then written to a specific church among those churches in Asia Minor. And then 3 John was written to a specific individual within a specific church among those churches in Asia Minor. But it's helpful to study all of these epistles together. Our focus is just on 2 and 3 John, which deals with the Christian concepts of truth and love. Truth and love related to another concept, Christian concept, and that is the concept of hospitality. Someone once said that loveless truth is brutal, and truthless love is hypocrisy, but love in truth is necessary. And I think that's true. In a nutshell, in 2 John, the apostle warned the church not to extend hospitality to false teachers because they had denied the cardinal doctrine of Christ's incarnation. In essence, what John told the church was, it's better to be divided by the truth than to be united in error. 
But in 3 John, he commends a man named Gaius for the hospitality that he had shown to true teachers of the word of God. And he encourages Gaius to continue showing hospitality, even in the face of a man by the name of Diotrephes, who wickedly rejected the true teachers of the word of God, and Diotrephes was encouraging others within the church to do the same. Whereas 2 John warns against welcoming deceptive, antichrist, false teachers, 3 John warns against rejecting true gospel preachers and teachers. So in 3 John, the apostle reminds Gaius and his congregation of the reality of false teachers taking advantage of the church, but that that is no excuse to be overzealous and reject true gospel preachers. The scriptures are very seriously concerned, not only that you reject false teachers, but also that you embrace true preachers, that you're not overzealous in a way that is legalistic. In other words, John writes to say, Gaius, you have done right in showing hospitality to these true teachers of the word. But Diotrephes, you have done wrong. You, your zeal is misguided. You think that you know better than everyone else. You have not evaluated these teachers. You don't know theology well enough to make an evaluation. And you're influencing others in the church to reject true preachers of the gospel. So it's hospitality that is being dealt with hospitality toward gospel preachers, but hospitality in general was a huge issue in the first century church for a number of reasons. First of all, there was a, the practical necessity, specifically of supporting gospel preachers. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 11 that he was on frequent journeys, and he was in constant danger, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from his own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers. And he said that he had much hardship and many sleepless nights. Because as a gospel preacher who traveled, it wasn't safe. Hotels didn't exist as they did today. And even the inns that existed were like roach-infested brothels owned by dishonest managers. And so Paul spoke of the practical dangers of traveling to preach the gospel. So hospitality was really a practical necessity in the first century. But secondly, it was also a cultural necessity. Even among the pagans, there was a cultural presence um, or pressure, pressure to show hospitality to travelers. The Greeks invented their own gods who were protectors of travelers. And even the Canaanites before them had their gods that did that as well. William Barclay, the historical commentator, says that hospitality was actually viewed as a spiritual thing, a sacred thing. Zeus, for example, was the god of strangers. And there was a system developed in the ancient world by pagans whereby families generationally promised hospitality to each other from different regions of those in their, in their, in their own country. So that when they traveled, tokens would be carried to identify their family with another family so that family would know they were obligated generationally to show hospitality. But there was not only this practical necessity of hospitality and cultural necessity, there was also an historical necessity laid down by God. God made it clear to Israel, and here's where you need to pay attention, that Israel care for strangers and sojourners. In fact, God reveals his heart in Psalm 146, the Lord protects the strangers, says the psalmist. 
Or Exodus 23, 9, I read it for our public reading of Scripture. God says, you shall not oppress a stranger since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. And if you're familiar with God's covenant with Israel, Malachi 3, 5 is clear that Israel was charged by the prophet Malachi as being guilty for turning away aliens and strangers. Because the Old Testament was full of examples of hospitality. This was the heart of God. You have in the book of Genesis, Melchizedek providing bread and wine to Abraham after rescuing Lot. You have Abraham providing food for the two angels. You have Lot that took two angels into his house, showing them hospitality. You have Laban, who offered hospitality to Abraham's servants. You have Jethro that showed hospitality to Moses and the Shunammite woman to Elijah in 2 Kings 4. You even have Job defending his purity against the false accusations of his friends by saying in Job 31, 32, the alien has not lodged outside for I've opened my doors to the traveler. He was defending his own character and he used that as an example. And so when we come to the New Testament, we see an emphasis on hospitality continuing. For example, Matthew 10, 40, Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And you have Zacchaeus showing hospitality to Jesus. You have Mary, Martha, and Lazarus doing the same thing. You then have the apostle Peter who was shown hospitality um, in the house of a tanner in Acts chapter 9, or Cornelius' home in Acts 10. You're familiar with Lydia and the Philippian jailer in Philippi showing hospitality to Paul. You're familiar with Priscilla and Aquila who opened their hearts and their home uh, to the apostle Paul. So there was a practical necessity for hospitality, a cultural necessity, an historical necessity, but it's also a biblical necessity, a biblical command. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It doesn't just say show hospitality. The Bible says seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9 says be hospitable to one another without complaint. And Hebrews even says, interestingly, in Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this some have entertained angels unawares. That's an interesting verse. 1 Timothy 5.10 speaks about the virtue of a godly woman. It's Mother's Day this morning. What is a virtuous thing about a godly woman? 1 Timothy 5.10 says that she will be hospitable. She will be one that opens her home and her heart to others. And while we're on the topic of women, let's talk about men. 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8. One of the qualifications of an elder is that he be hospitable. Now, as I said in our study of 2 John The early church met in homes. So this naturally created a personal and warm atmosphere for a ton of hospitality to take place. But whereas 2 John warns the church not to extend hospitality to false teachers, 3 John encourages Gaius and really rebukes Diotrephes to say we must show hospitality to true preachers of the gospel. And of course, the general principle of hospitality applies to all Christians as well. Now, we don't know for sure, but it appears that Gaius, and this is my personal conviction, was the pastor of this particular church. He had received true gospel preachers sent by John, and he had welcomed them. 
And the church as a whole had done the same, except for a small minority led by Diotrephes. Diotrephes was on a power trip. He was trying to control the congregation. He was sort of like the church boss, uh, perhaps using his influence and his authority as an elder to influence people wrongly. And this Diotrephes, as we're going to study, had closed the door of hospitality to these preachers. And not only that, he had thrown people out of the church For trying to show hospitality. He had excommunicated them. And so John writes this letter. The letter is carried, I believe, by another man, a man by the name of Demetrius, who would report back to Diotrephes that John was on his way to deal with this issue. And so this letter is the most personal, probably of all New Testament epistles, because it revolves around not certain points of theology, but the very practical demonstration of hospitality. And the outline actually revolves around three men, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. So as such, that will be our outline as we walk through this book together. This is a very practical letter. What does it teach us? Before we even get started on it, here are some general things that it teaches us. This letter reminds us, number one, of the temptation of misdirected zeal and the damage it can cause, like diatrophies. Secondly, the letter reminds us of the temptation to abuse church leadership. That's always a temptation for elders and deacons and pastors, and so the Bible warns against that. Third, the letter reminds us of the danger of competing platforms regarding pastors or ministries or personalities. Just go on Twitter, uh, just go on Facebook, and you'll see all sorts of ministries, all sorts of platforms by pastors promoting their brand and being in conflict with other Christians. What does the Bible teach us about that sort of attitude? Well, this letter helps us. This letter also reminds us, number four, about the importance of sincere Christian hospitality. I've already mentioned that. And fifth, the letter reminds us of our part in supporting gospel preachers and ministries sacrificially to support the building of God's kingdom. So we can all learn something about local church ministry from this letter, 3 John. Uh, All the warts of personality clashes, conflicts of interest, domineering personalities, and the wonders of being privileged to take part together in kingdom building when we work together. So we learn something valuable when we look at the lives of Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. And we're going to begin by looking at the life of Gaius or his example, likely the pastor of this church. And uh, church tradition tells us he later became the bishop of Pergamum. And Pergamum was a church in Asia Minor. So perhaps the church that John wrote to was the church of Pergamum. Now the Apostle John commends Gaius in verses 1 through 8 for his pastoral faithfulness. And his pastoral faithfulness was the result of three realities that were true in his life. First of all, God's blessing was behind him. Secondly, God's Bible or truth was before him. And third, God's behavior was before him. This encourages pastors to be faithful. It encourages parishioners to pray for their pastor, to to pray for him because he's on the front lines of spiritual warfare, to pray for other churches and other pastors as well. As John comes to the end of his life, he's writing in about the year 85 AD. He's writing from Ephesus. And it's probably likely that John was sort of the apostle that was over Asia Minor. This was very common 
For example, John Polhill, who was a New Testament professor of mine in seminary, wrote this in one of his works. He says the term elder, that's who John refers to himself as, the term elder may have pointed to John's role as the apostolic leader of a community of churches. Paul seems to have filled that kind of role in various areas where he established churches. He often settled in a major metropolitan area and he sent workers into the surrounding countryside. They established churches, they reported back to Paul. And though Paul himself may have never visited a given congregation, he was considered the ultimate authority over that church. John, who followed Paul in Ephesus, probably, John Paul Hill says, exercised the same sort of leadership over the churches in Asia Minor. John was writing the letter to Gaius because an individual, Diotrephes, was rejecting John's apostolic leadership by refusing to accept the missionary workers sent out by the apostle. And so that's, I think, uh, the best way to describe what's taking place here. John is concerned about these churches in Asia Minor. He's concerned about this particular church, this particular pastor, Gaius, and the particular problems that were going on in this particular church. So what are the three realities that resulted in Gaius being such a faithful pastor? Well, first of all, we see in verses 1 and 2 that God's blessing was behind him. God's blessing was behind him. God's blessing on Gaius is evident by John's confirmed love of him in verse 1 and also by his continued prayer for him. Notice in verse 1, one, the elder, that tells us it's from the Apostle John, the same one that wrote Second John and First John, to whom he calls, notice this, the beloved Gaius. Now, there are three Gaiuses mentioned in the New Testament, one from Corinth, one from Macedonia, one from Derby. It's complicated to know the exact identity of this Gaius because most commentators believe that the name Gaius was actually the most common name in his region of the world. It would be like the name John in our own day. But tradition says that Gaius, the one that we deal with here in 3 John, later became the bishop of Pergamum, being appointed there by the apostle John himself. Some suggest that this later bishop of Pergamum, this Gaius, was the Gaius of Derby, spoken about in the book of Acts. He had traveled with Paul on his last journey from Greece through Macedonia and was probably um, a church delegate for the transmission of the collection for the poor in Judea. And that would make sense. That would, that would highlight his tendency to want to show hospitality. He had cared for the poor and helped collect an offering. We can't know for certain, but he's likely the pastor of this church, the later bishop of Pergamum, and it's clear that he occupied a position of responsibility and leadership because he's addressed here in verse 1. That's who the letter is to. It's not to the church. It's to the beloved Gaius. This shows that he was respected in the church, the way that John addresses him. And in fact, three of the first 11 Greek words of this epistle reference the word love. In fact, including the end of verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. The truth of the gospel of Christ is what binds all of us together in Christian love. And John is pointing that out. We see once again the concept of truth and love. They aren't to be separated, as we saw in the book of 2 John. That Christians are those who have been chosen of God. We are holy and beloved, Colossians 3.12. 
God uniquely loved his beloved Gaius because he chose him before the foundation of the world. And John uniquely loved beloved Gaius because he was part of the family of God. And those in this congregation loved the beloved Gaius because he was one with them. He was their faithful shepherd. He had been on the side of truth embracing the preachers that John had sent. And so John says, I want you to know that I'm with you in the truth and I love you in the truth because you stand by the truth. This must have been such an encouragement to the beloved Gaius, to be called the beloved and to be reminded not only of God's predetermined love for him and all the spiritual blessings outlined in Ephesians 1, spiritual blessings that he had in Christ, but also the vocational blessing that he was called into the ministry. He was equipped, hands were laid upon him by the elders and probably by the apostles to pastor this church. And so Gaius is reminded of the fact that God's blessing is behind him. I mean, it may be true that John is behind him, and it may be true that the church is behind him, but most importantly, God's blessing, his love and his care was behind Gaius. And that is what fueled his faithfulness in the ministry, to stand up against someone like Diotrephes, who had a powerful personality in the church, but had a poor influence. But God's blessing on Gaius is not only evident in John's love confirmed, but also in the prayer continued, verse 2. He calls him beloved again. Beloved, John says to Gaius, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. In other words, Gaius has it on apostolic authority that God intends to bless him for continued ministry, both spiritual and physical blessing. And John is so confident God's going to bless him this way and to that end that he expresses such confidence in sharing this prayer with Gaius that it may go well with you. That was a phrase that was used to describe the well wishes you might give to someone going on a journey, uh, that you might have success or prosperity, sort of like the term Godspeed or God be with you. Essentially, the pronouncement of a blessing is what verse 2 is. John is praying the Lord continues to bless Gaius, and he adds there, notice verse 2, and that you may be in good health. As such, of course, was essential for God to continue to use Gaius, especially in light of the immense, stressful circumstances that he was under, the ministry that was, was on his shoulders. He has to deal with this diatrophies. He, he has to preach the word of God. He has to defend the saints against false teachers. But then notice John quickly adds, as it goes well with your soul. I love this because what John is saying is that he was confident of Gaius's spiritual well-being and he wants his physical well-being to match his spiritual well-being and that you may be in good health as it goes well with you. You see, John's particular emphasis on praying upon Gaius a spiritual and physical blessing is very interesting in light of the incipient Gnosticism of the day. Remember I told you that Gnosticism viewed the body as evil, it viewed all material substance as evil, And John had to affirm in the second letter um, that there were false teachers, Gnostics, who were teaching Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh because they taught that the body was evil. But Jesus himself was served according to his physical needs. People provided food and water and clothing, room and board for Jesus. In fact, I believe that good health is undervalued by most ministers today to the detriment of their own congregations and 
In my own life, I've even had to slow down recently because of my migraines as you have been praying for me. And there are things that I have to do to stay physically in shape. I must be willing to discipline my body for the long road of ministry. You know, the Apostle Paul was this way. He understood taking care of his body was critically important. Paul said, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. Paul was a, a fan of sports, and he says here, I feel like an athlete. I'm exercising myself. But he says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see, a minister must learn to listen to his body, sort of like a marathon runner, understanding the injuries that can occur and how to care for his body because good health enables him to serve the Lord with vigor. And that is essentially what John is praying for Gaius concerning, this spiritual and physical blessing on Gaius. Ministers are to be examples to the flock in everything, in mind, in body, and in soul. I joke with people all the time because I entered the ministry very young, and so you have dog years, and then you also have pastor years, and I always tell people I'm really about 55 or 60 years old in pastor years. I'm only a third of the way through. I've got a long way to go if the Lord continues to bless me. But there is this idea of Gnostic, Neoplatonic, Greek thought that views the body and material things as evil. And it didn't just influence John's churches. It influences people today. In its grossest form, uh, preachers talk about just the idea of pursuing knowledge and raising up to a higher plane so that they even believe they can be above sin. And you look at their lives and they're not physically fit. They don't care for themselves. They're not mentally in good shape. This is not good. This is the influence of, of Gnosticism on the church, this Neoplatonic Greek thought that the body doesn't matter, material things don't matter, all that matters is the spiritual. Well, that wasn't John's view. He was against the Gnostics. A biblical view of the Christian life and ministry has a long-term generational focus because it's impossible, apart from material and physical blessing, to live out a godly life and to be an example before God's people for the long haul. And John is not praying some sort of health, wealth, prosperity on Gaius. No, his, his prayer for Gaius reflects simply the practical concern that God continues to bless him physically, material, and spiritually so he can do all he can to serve the church and bless the church. What do we take from this first point? Well, I believe that God's people ought to do all in their power to support, to work for, to pray, to desire the success and prosperity of the gospel in their own community in the context of their own church, for their own minister. Because as long as God's blessing is behind a church, that church will be a conduit for kingdom growth and blessing. Gaius was faithful, and his church was blessed because God's blessing was upon him. And the prayers of God's people were upon him, beginning with John. God's blessing was behind this faithful minister. And that's really the first reality that fueled his pastoral faithfulness and John really 
commends him, but in commending him for this blessing is really giving glory to God. That there is a second reality true about his pastoral faithfulness. Not only was God's blessing behind him, but secondly, God's Bible or God's truth was beside him. We see this in verses 3 and 4. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You see, Gaius was a faithful shepherd because he didn't leave his weapon at home. He was armed with the truth of God. That is the word of God. And what is the evidence of that? Verse 3. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, underline the word truth, as indeed you are walking in, underline the word again, the truth. John had, as he says here, rejoiced greatly. Why? Well, because Gaius, uh, his faithfulness was evidenced by the testimony of who he refers to here as the brothers who came and testified. John says to Gaius, they testified of his truth. Apparently, the brothers, these traveling gospel preachers that John had sent, they visited Gaius' church, and after witnessing Gaius, after witnessing his preaching, they saw he was a man of truth. They realized that he was a man of the truth of the gospel in particular, a truth of God's word in general. And they reported it back to John, ranting and raving about it. Interestingly, it says that they testified, verse 3, to your truth. That is to Gaius' truth. John doesn't say anything about his ability to preach, but to his faithfulness to the truth. Gaius had a personal, not merely theological, commitment to the truth. Of course he was a sound preacher. He was thoroughly orthodox. But the point that John is making and why John is commending him is because the report that he got back was that Gaius' whole life had been shaped by the truth of God's word. He believed the truth. He preached the truth. And as verse 3 says, he walked in the truth. That is a metaphor for living the truth of God out. As one commentator says, and I quote, those who were with Gaius for only a short time could not fail to be encouraged by his faithful, consistent integrity as a Christian, end quote. Much less a preacher, He was the real deal. And these brothers' testimony was evidence of that. Gaius' life and ministry was marked by a faithfulness to the truth. You know, Paul said in 2 Timothy 1, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me, Timothy, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He speaks about, he speaks about, the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, the truth and love, and to guard the good deposit, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And I I would just ask you this question this morning on a side note. What about your life? You know, Jesus spoke of religious leaders who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. Far from Him. As far as church leadership goes, it goes without saying that orthodoxy is important, but so is integrity. Truth in the inner being. And what is true about the pastor or what must be true about the pastor should be true about all of God's people. Truth in the inner being. Psalm 51.6 Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Gaius had truth in the secrets of his heart. There weren't any skeletons in his closet. It's amazing because he was probably 
a wonderful preacher. But that's not what he's commended for. He's commended for his integrity as a Christian. Gaius' faithfulness was the result of God's word, God's truth, constantly being beside him, constantly being within him. And the evidence was the testimony of others. As we'll see, unfortunately, Diotrephes didn't receive the same praise. He, he wasn't the same type of man as Gaius was. But God's truth was beside Gaius. So after highlighting the evidence of that, John moves now, notice with me in verse 4, to provide encouragement to Gaius to continue to remain faithful. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The truth obviously refers to the faith. It refers to right doctrine and then the living out of that right doctrine and the duty of one's life, uh, right belief and right behavior. Uh, right confession and right conduct. His life was molded to the truth. He walked according to the truth. And John says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. This is really an echo of Second John 4. You remember that from last time. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. You see, John regarded Gaius as a son in the faith. Just as Paul regarded Timothy as a son in the faith. And John was fond of the imagery of the pastor as a father. He spoke to the little children in 1 John. He did the same thing in 2 John. And now again in 3 John, he's speaking about children and his child, Gaius. Paul also spoke this way in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul says, For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He said in 1 Thessalonians 2.11, For you know how like a father with his children... We exhorted you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It's essentially what John is telling Gaius here in verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, you Gaius, are walking in the truth. You're walking in a way that honors the Lord. Spiritual progress of those under a pastor's care is always his greatest joy. And that's the principle to take from verse 4. It's always a pastor's greatest joy. And in the same way, a pastor's greatest grief is indifference or antagonism to the authority of the truth of God's word. Not the authority of the pastor, but antagonism to the authority of God's word. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, what advantage is it To be antagonistic to the truth of God's word. And to cause problems in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this passage because Gaius is not praised for his spiritual gift of preaching. Although he had that. He's praised for being a true Christian with integrity. And and John isn't commending Gaius um, for some great spiritual gift. And and no, no doubt Gaius... As he looked at his congregation, he probably viewed them as children walking in the truth, but he wasn't impressed by their spiritual gifts. He was impressed by the fact that they had integrity, that they were true Christians that honored the Lord. Here's the point, folks. Gaius wasn't just a talking Bible, preaching with a profession that was orthodox. He was a walking Bible in his conduct and his character. There wasn't a disconnect between his walk and his talk. And such will be true of all faithful pastors. They they will be walking on the path of light in the light of God's word, like a lamp unto their feet, in a light unto their path. Pastors are not meant to be merely ideologues, talking heads. 
They are meant to be practitioners of truth, verbally and demonstrably. And for the most part, Gaius had a congregation, I think, that was hungry to hear the word. They were being influenced by him to embrace these true teachers. They were being nurtured by the word of God, the truth of God that he was preaching and teaching and living before them. They were growing. They were spiritually healthy and mature. But I want to point something out to you before we move on to the next point. Skip back to me to verse number 2, where John says, Beloved, referring to Gaius, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Remember I said that John is praying for a spiritual and physical blessing on Gaius, that just as he knows he's spiritually healthy, he wants his physical health to match his spiritual health. You see, the spiritual health of a congregation will never rise above the spiritual health of her pastor. That's the point. And Gaius, no doubt, was that example. And he could have said, I believe, Verse 4, to his own congregation. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I can just imagine Gaius standing before the church after reading this letter and being encouraged and deciding to preach a sermon on what it means to walk in truth and quoting John. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. And I'll stop and say this because I don't often brag on this church, but this is the best church I have ever pastored. You say, why is that? Well, it's not because of me, and it's not because of you. It's because the Spirit of God has worked in our hearts. The Spirit of God has cultivated a sincere love for Christ, a sincere love for one another, and nothing else really matters. matters not how big the church is, how big the budget is, what sort of platform the pastor has. None of that stuff ultimately matters. What matters is I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That was the heart of John. And so this naturally moves us to the third reality true about Gaius. This is such a personal and warm letter as John writes about his love for Gaius. Gaius had proved his pastoral faithfulness and the result of of his pastoral faithfulness flowed from, number one, God's blessing was behind him. Secondly, God's Bible, his truth, was beside him. But number three, God's behavior was before him. Here in verses five through eight, we see the specific areas where he showed faithfulness. So, so far, John has just been speaking in generalities. But here, God's behavior was before him. That is what resulted In his faithfulness, there are three specific areas that Gaius showed pastoral faithfulness in. And these should be true about all pastors. Number one, he pursued a godly dedication, verses five and six. Again, John refers to Gaius as beloved, verse five, beloved. It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. He calls him beloved again, showing the depth of their bond in Christ as ministry associates. But here, Gaius is commended for, notice this in verse 5, all his efforts. Why? Well, he worked hard to welcome these traveling preachers that John sent, these brothers who were strangers. In other words, Gaius didn't know them. But when they went back to John, they testified, as John already said in verse 3, of Gaius' love. And they testified about Gaius' love before the church. I think this means that they, they went back to John and gave a testimony about this church in Asia Minor that Gaius pastored. 
And John calls this, notice in verse 5, a faithful thing, this work, this effort, this sort of dedication, this sort of ministry endeavor. And he even calls it love. He says, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, verse 6, who testified to your love. In other words, Gaius's motives were fueled by sincere love for God's glory and the good of his congregation. So that we see again, there's no disconnect between truth and love. The word truth is used three times, verse 1, verse 3, verse 4. The word love is used two times, verse 1 and verse 6. Truth and love go together. Now how did Gaius demonstrate integrity of a truth-filled walk in love? Well, he welcomed these brothers in his home. He showed them hospitality. And, and that is why John says what he does at the end of verse 6. He says, notice your Bibles, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. In other words, Gaius had planned to do just that. He had opened his home and his heart, and he wanted to support these true teachers. He wanted to encourage them. But remember, I told you this man Diotrephes was hindering him. And John is saying, no, Gaius, stick to your guns. What you're doing is right. What you're doing is right. This love that you have, this dedication, this effort in ministry. You do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. A manner worthy of God means in a way that praises God or glorifies God. You see, I think Gaius was starting to become a little discouraged and intimidated by Diotrephes. And Gaius may be overpowered by the pressure of Diotrephes and grow weary in his well-doing, to quote Galatians 6.9. And so John writes to inspire within him greater determination, greater dedication by recounting his faithfulness in the past and encouraging him to continue on that same path. Essentially, John says, look guys, give these preachers whatever they need. Food, supplies, room and board, a traveling companion, Whatever it is, even money, because just skip ahead to verse 8 for a minute. John says, therefore, we ought to support people like these. So he says in verse 6, send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Give them whatever they need. You see, Gaius' love was consistent with the truth he professed he believed. He was a man of sincerity and he was a man of hospitality. Now, on a side note, as I said in my introduction, all Christians should show love in a hospitable and visible and tangible way. You say, why should I do this? Well, number one, the Bible says this is a matter of serving Christ himself. I, I quoted part of a verse earlier, but I'm going I'm to quote the rest of it to you. Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. That is an amazing principle that our Lord lays down. That you, even if you're not a preacher, can receive the same reward he receives in heaven by serving him. Or a righteous person. Another righteous person, another Christian, you can receive the reward they're going to receive because you become one with them and serving them and honoring them and loving them. You remember when Jesus' disciples complained because the woman had poured perfume all over Jesus' head? 
And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why did you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing because when we show hospitality, we are actually serving Christ himself. Secondly, we should show hospitality not only because it's a matter of serving Christ himself, but secondly, because it's a matter of entertaining angels. I mentioned this verse earlier, Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I wouldn't believe that verse if it wasn't in the Bible, because I'm not sure I've ever seen an angel, but it's in the Bible, and the Bible says, show hospitality to strangers. Because it's a matter of entertaining angels. Third, hospitality is a matter of obeying God. You didn't forget Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Or 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Um, In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it it gives even specific uh, recommendations to show hospitality. It says that we are to show hospitality to widows. It says in 1 Timothy 5, um, 17 and 18, that elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer is deserving of his wages. You have in Acts chapter 6, the apostles appointing deacons who can be servants. That's what the word deacon means. It just means servants. And what was their job? It was to care for the widows. It was to serve the poor. You know, the church has dropped the ball in that area. There used to be a day and time in which churches ran orphanages, in which churches fed the poor. Now the state has become everyone's God. And now the state seeks to, quote-unquote, help people by giving them everything that they could ever want or need and beyond that, and it's created a whole class of people that are lazy. It's because the church hasn't done her job. The church doesn't have a vibrant deacon ministry. The church isn't caring for the physical needs of others. The physical needs of women who have children out of wedlock and want to abort the babies. Where is the church? What sort of voice is the church declaring and speaking to these issues? See, showing hospitality is a matter of serving Christ himself. It's a matter of entertaining angels. It's a matter of obeying God. And it's also a matter of following the example of of one's leaders. 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8 says that all elders are to be hospitable. That is a, a qualifying mark of the man of God who leads the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This issue was a huge issue and James, the, the half-brother of our Lord, writes about it. You remember this. James says in James 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. This is a matter of authentic Christianity. Demonstration of hospitality. John wrote in his first letter, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, Gaius loved not just in word, but in deed. He was a servant to these traveling preachers. And I just want to say this, a pastor in particular 
And church leadership in general will set the thermostat of the church. And that will either result in a cold orthodoxy or a warm orthodoxy. Guys had the right balance. He preached and lived the truth, and therefore the people under his charge lived sacrificially, serving, showing hospitality. The result was not only red-hot preaching and a warm atmosphere of that, but also a warm atmosphere of love and service. But John encourages Guy's faithful, godly walk, not only commending him for his pursuit of a godly dedication to his flock, but also, number two, because he practiced a godly discernment. Verse 7, John says, notice your Bibles, for they, that is these traveling preachers, have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Here John commends Gaius for recognizing the sincerity of these gospel preachers in contrast to Diotrephes. Notice verse 9, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, doesn't acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, that is against the apostles. Not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, these traveling preachers, and also stops those who want, want to and puts them out of the church. In contrast to that, Gaius, this is what John is saying in verse 7, Gaius showed discernment. He understood that these brothers were those who went out for the sake of the name, as John says in verse 7. They weren't like those that John spoke about in 2 John 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They were sent by Satan. Gaius was able to discern that these were true preachers. They came in the name of Jesus. Verse 7, for the sake of the name. That's the name of Jesus. There is salvation and no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12. Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, everyone will bow. These were preachers of the gospel. And it was good and faithful for Gaius to have this sort of discernment because these gospel preachers were the real thing. They knew how to conduct ministry. Notice verse 7 It says they were accepting nothing from the Gentiles. That simply means, don't read too much into that, it simply means they had integrity. Gentiles here is not being used in its ethnic sense. This is a metaphor for pagans or unbelievers as opposed to spiritual sons of Abraham by faith. Go read the book of Galatians. Understand, there is no biblical prohibition for ministries taking money from non-Christians. For example, Jesus received a cup of cold water from a Samaritan woman. And that is okay. I remember one time after preaching several years ago, this couple stayed after church and they had this thick envelope. And they came up to me after church, after everyone was gone, I was the only one there. And they said, we want to we give you this gift. And the envelope was about that thick. They said, we're not going to tell you how much money is in there, but uh, it's a lot of money. And we want you to receive it. I said, well, what is your name? They wouldn't give me their name. I said, where do you come from? They wouldn't tell me. So I, I really started to think maybe this was uh, angels that I was entertaining. Is this some sort of test from God? But as I began to ask more and more, I realized that if I took that, it would be a lapse of judgment, number one, because even if I put it in the offering, that money is somehow corrupted and it sing, sends the wrong signal. Because what does it say about me? 
It says that my services can be bought. That's what it says. Because what sort of favor are they going to ask from me in the future? So as a matter of principle and policy, I rejected that and I never saw them again. And that's what these traveling preachers were doing. As a matter of principle and policy and procedure, they didn't want to be associated with the itinerant philosophers who traveled around and begged for money, who charged high sums for their teaching services. Not wholly indifferent from the begging friars of the Middle Ages. In fact, you remember Paul condemned those peddlers of the word in 2 Corinthians 2.17. Paul said, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God and the sight of God, we speak Christ. And Paul even told Titus, there are some upsetting whole families teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. The point here is not that it's always sinful to take money from non-Christians. The point is that Christian ministers have a right to depend upon God's people because that way integrity is across the board. God's people have an obligation to give their resources to those who preach and teach the gospel. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 just for a moment because Paul gives sort of um, his view on this. He speaks about his ministerial rights. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? No, does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting, his, his sort of false boasting for saying I never asked for money. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, I have a right to it, but I'm not going to demand it. And John is telling Gaius, that's what these traveling preachers were doing. They were dependent upon the church. And so Gaius should support them. They weren't going to go peddle the word and beg for money. Remember when Jesus sent out the 70, he charged them not to take anything for their travels except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, 
but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. You remember Paul at times would work with his hands. But when Christians don't give sacrificially, what does it say about God? What does it say about the value of the gospel and the rich spiritual truth of the word? Paul was always concerned about integrity. He was always concerned about bad optics. Remember he said, I coveted no man's silver, no man's gold. I coveted no man's apparel. You know that these hands ministered to my necessities. And he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4. We labor working with our hands. What he means by that is that he was a tent maker on the side. He's willing to do that for the sake of the church. Why? Because of integrity. He didn't want anyone to think that he was doing this for the money. One of the warmest passages that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, he wrote to the Thessalonians and he he said this, he said, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we are not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have the right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. To imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul was always concerned about integrity. Did he have rights? Sure, he had rights. But did he have integrity? Yeah, that was more important. He never wanted to be viewed as a snake oil salesman or a vagrant. And he knew that because God commands his people to give and because God loves cheerful givers, that he would never be impoverished. There was a joke, and I was young when I was told it, so I believed it was original with the person that told it, and then I realized this is a joke that Everyone says, the joke goes like this, an elder's prayer for the minister, Lord, you keep him humble while I keep him poor. Someone actually told me that. That was their prayer for me. Well, that's okay, I'm in good hands because I'm in God's hands. But doesn't that go against Scripture? 1 Thessalonians 5, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Early Christian writing, the Didache, speaks about how to know a false teacher when you see one. You know one of the telltale signs is if they ask for money and if they stay more than three days. If they stay more than three days, that might mean they're moving in. Get rid of them. The value of Gaius and the reason he was such a faithful minister is because he was eager to protect the flock and he had discernment. He knew a false teacher when he saw it and rejected it. But these guys, these brothers, he knew they were real. Why? Because they wouldn't accept anything from Gentiles and that's why he wanted to give to them. And that's why he encouraged the church to give to them. He was a faithful pastor, protecting the church from error, encouraging the church to obey God. But Gaius proved his faithfulness as a pastor because God's blessing was behind him. Second, God's Bible or truth was beside him. Third, God's behavior was before him. He he walked a godly path that pursued a godly dedication, practiced a godly discernment. Third and finally, verse 8, participated in a godly duty. We'll be quick on this. Verse 8, therefore, John says, we ought to support people like these, these traveling brothers, these preachers, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. 
I love this. What John is saying is that by helping, receiving, and supporting these traveling gospel preachers, Gaius, by example, had proven, listen to this, that he had a larger kingdom vision than that relegated to his own little church. He was willing to give. He was willing to support. He was willing to promote other ministries, other pastors. Yeah, And in so doing, notice what John calls him. He says that you may be a fellow worker of the truth. And he even says, we ought to be this way. We we ought to support people like these. It's a great commendation. This was a man who was humble. He wasn't trying to build his own platform so he could, I don't know, win friends and influence people. He cared about the Word of God. He cared about the truth of God. He cared about the people of God. And yes, he would stand before them and tell them the truth and rebuke them and admonish them if necessary, but he would also encourage them, encourage them to do what was right. And that is support the work of the truth. Notice how verse 8 is stated in the plural. John switches from the singular, speaking to Gaius, now to the plural, Therefore, we, that is Gaius and his congregation, therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. That should be the goal of every church. We, we are allies of the truth. We avoid, on the one hand, sharp tribalism, cliquish mentalities. We have a larger kingdom focus than just our church. Why? Because we are fellow workers for the truth. And there's only one truth. The truth of the gospel. And when you align with truth, when you align with pastors and ministries and churches and root for the truth, you're on the team of the kingdom. That's John's encouragement to Gaius. We're to be together for the sake of the gospel. To be like an army marching forth to conquer the world for Christ. We aren't to get in Twitter battles over what kind of font is used. Because people are copying other people's statements in the font they use. How ridiculous is that? If that's not vying for attention, I don't know what is. But here's the reality. We're fellow workers of the truth. When we are a source of gospel blessing, others are blessed. And when others are blessed, we are blessed. Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives a prophet receives the reward of a prophet. So we're to embrace other Christians of various stripes. To work with them, partner with them. We're to follow the example of Gaius. He was a faithful pastor. Not as we're going to see next week, the example of Diotrephes. He wasn't faithful. Gaius was faithful and it created a warm, loving, truth-filled environment. Last night I was watching Pastor John MacArthur in a Q&A. I love to watch him because he's filled with so much wisdom. He's been pastoring for 60 years the same church and he uh, just recently had a lady in his church die she was a charter member of Grace Church she was there 13 years before MacArthur got there in 1969 she was old she died 
her husband still living. And uh, of course, he went to the funeral and he said that he, he had visited with them a couple of times in the last six months. But he received this letter from the husband showing his gratitude uh, to MacArthur. And this is what he said. He said, the reason that I know you love me as my pastor is because you stand up week in and week out and deliver the truth that you studied hard all week and you did that for us. I thought, wow. That truly is a labor of love. And then MacArthur said, more than any counseling session or any one-on-one discipleship, the most influence that any pastor has is his life living the truth in his love. Studying the Word of God exhaustively and delivering that truth as if it's a meal to his children, to the glory of God. Not for himself, not to build a platform, not to get money, not to garner attention, but for the glory of God, for a future reward. Why do we complicate things? You want to be part of a biblical church? Don't go to the church that emphasizes one-on-one discipleship. There's not enough time for that. There's not enough time in one day for me to meet with everyone every week. But there is enough time for you to come for one hour to hear the Word of God, to understand its truth, to be fed its theology, to be encouraged to live for God and to know that you can pick the phone up anytime you want and call me for encouragement. This is what a biblical church is marked by. It's faithfulness lived out by the people, by the pastor with full integrity, not afraid of man, not afraid of the world, standing on the truth. The Lord will build a church like that. The Lord will make that church be successful and prosper. That's the blessing that John prayed for Gaius. And that's the blessing you can pray for this church and you can know God will answer it because He's always faithful to His Word. Let us pray. Father, thank You for the power of Your Word. It's so powerful each week we study it. And we have had the privilege of getting inside the inner rooms of this particular church. We don't know if it was the church at Pergamum or not. We know Gaius was likely the pastor We know that it was a faithful church, loved the truth. It had a pastor who preached the truth. It had leaders in it like Demetrius, who was probably some sort of leader, who was also faithful. Lord, it is a model church in many ways. We thank you for what you have done in this church, Christ Reformed. We thank you for what you are doing in other churches in our community that are faithfully preaching the gospel. Lord, it really does begin with the faithfulness of the pastor, the faithfulness of the people, the integrity of living righteously, the courage to stand on truth. That is the type of church you've promised to bless. We thank you that you've promised to do that in your word and that you've given to us this model of Gaius, this model of this church. It's been so encouraging. We pray, Lord, that as we continue to study this book, that you might reach into our hearts. We might understand the importance of truth and love. We might understand the importance of Christian hospitality. That you would knit us together by your Holy Spirit in deeper love, deeper affection for Christ, for his glory, and deeper love for one another in the truth. We pray 
and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.